Well, I just want to start by saying thank you all very much for your support of myself and our family as we have come um, to Ozark and to First Baptist Church. Uh, it has been just a wonderful blessing to be a part of this body of Christ and receive the support that we have received from you. And I just, I know we said that in a bulletin, but if you're like me, you might not read all of your bulletin, and so you might not have known that. So thank you very much. Please turn into your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. As you're turning there, I just want to set the context of our passage. Romans 8 could be defined or summarized by being and talking about life in the Spirit, the Spirit that God gives us through Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 11 talk about life in the Spirit as it regards holiness and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, but walking in the Spirit. Verses 12 through 17, Paul talks about how the Spirit that indwells us gives us an understanding that we belong to God in a very intimate way as his children. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And then when we get to our text today in verse 18, Paul goes in and talks about the hope that we have in the midst of suffering. And the main point of our text today is this. If you are a child of God this morning, you have a great and glorious hope in the future, even in the midst of your suffering. And I was ready to close shop after worship service because they said everything I'm going to say. But um, since David took time away from us because of Wednesday, so I will do the same to him. Let us read God's word, please, together. Romans chapter 8. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only, this cre not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For hope, for who hopes for what he does not see or what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Robert B. Sherman was a man who was well acquainted with the very first phrase of this passage. The passage in the part where Paul acknowledges the sufferings of this present time. Robert Sherman knew the sufferings of this world as he went off to, world, to fight in the European theater of World War II. 
He knew the pain and suffering of this world that during his service he was shot in the leg, left for, left for the remainder of his life crippled with a limp and in need of a cane. Robert also knew the suffering of this world as he saw the evil done to humanity as he led one of the first allied troops into the deserted concentration camps. Robert would record and remember walking in and seeing numerous pits filled above the brim with dead corpses of those who had been tortured just because of the race that they were. He saw skeletons walking about draped with skin and sinew, not resembling anything of humanity. He would remember the sufferings of this world as he saw children left for dead, covered and plagued with lice and fleas. And this experience of suffering in the world would lead Robert B. Sherman an opportunity to tell the world and to remind the world of the suffering in one of the most played songs in human history. He had the opportunity to pen the words of a famous song that we all probably know but have never given much thought to. Let me read you the words of insight that Robert had concerning this world. Robert penned these words. It's a world of laughter, a world of tears. It's a world of hopes, and yet a world of fears. There's so much that we share that it's time we're aware it's a small world after all. Robert knew that we do live in a world of laughter, but he could also go back to those points of suffering and realize this is a world of tears. He could realize the hopes and see the hopes post-World War II, but he could not shake the reality that we still live in a world of fears. And as I look across this auditorium, the sanctuary, as we pray every week for you and the rest of the flock, I know that you all know the sufferings that this world has, the sufferings of this present time. The Bible does not mince words. It does not, not, does not hide the fact that we live in a world full of suffering. It acknowledges that even the, the great folks of faith suffered in this world. Abraham, after he answered and obeyed the call of God to leave the, 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 the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans. And, and once he got up into Canaan, what did he face? But famine that moved him out to Egypt. Moses, man, God had chosen him and he delivered the people of Israel from the, from the world power at the time. And he suffered rebellion and doubt from the people. Shoot, his own sister, Miriam, started a ruckus and a rebellion against him. She was struck with leprosy. Children, be careful who, how you tease your brothers and sisters. David was anointed king of Israel by Samuel and then had to flee for his life and year, lived years in caves, hunted like a wild animal from Saul. 
and even our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, came to this earth, crucified by the very ones he came to save. We sang that at one of the very first songs. We live in this world of suffering, and you know it, and you felt it. And some of us in greater degrees than others. But there is a whole lot more to this passage than the first part. And we're going to be spending most of our time on that. Paul understands that there is suffering in this present time, but if you are a child of God, there is a great and glorious hope in the midst of our suffering. So this morning we're going to look at this passage. We're going to see uh, and learn what Paul, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will tell us about this great hope that we have. First of all, we're told that this hope that we have is a hope of incomparable glory. A hope of incomparable glory. Paul says, for I consider, another way you could translate that is I reckon. It's a mathematical term. It's a calculating term. And what he says is, when I look at the sufferings of this world, and I weigh them in the balance, and I calculate what they have to offer, and I calculate the future glory that is to come, when I calculate them together, there is no comparison. Maybe to put it in practical terms and pictures, if you picture a number line, the suff our sufferings might put us in the negative numbers. Negative five, negative ten. Some of you might feel like you're in the negative hundreds for the suffering that you're going through or have gone through. But when you consider and you reckon and you compare it to the glory that's going to be come to us, we're talking positive numbers of tens of thousands to the tens and thousands of place. A glory that is incomparable. Now, I'll be honest, it does not take a lot for me to start getting confused with big numbers. But the glory that is to come is a glory that is incomparable and infinite. What is this glory that we're talking about? It's a glory of grandeur. The glory that is going to be revealed is a glory of magnificence. It is a most glorious condition, a most exalted state of being. It is the condition that Jesus Christ has as he was ascended and brought into heaven and sat at God's right hand. He who was made low and died the death, a criminal's death on the cross, was raised from the grave and now sits at the right hand of God in glory forever and ever. Now we have an incomparable glory where Jesus is going to share that with us. That's, that's staggering. It's a glory of grandeur. It's a glory of the future. It's not yet come. We can only and we only have parts of this glory in part. In incomplete forms. Paul talks about us having and being filled with the first fruits of the Spirit. That's because, you know what first fruits are? First fruits are the first fruits. There we go. That's the explanation. No. We have a garden, right? We planted it and we just got our first crop of beans. I love green beans. A little bit of bacon grease, potatoes, onions. Mm, 
I know, I'm sorry, it's a bad thing to do right before lunch. <laughs> but those beans that we got were just the first fruits. It wasn't the full harvest. It's not all we're going to get. But we are, we are able to taste a little bit of what's to come. The glory that we're going to be experiencing is in the future. Don't expect to have your best life now and the glory to come to be right now. The glory is out there. It's in the future and it will be revealed to us. We have a hope for an incomparable glory. It is a glory of divinity, a glory that will come only from our Savior, Jesus Christ. John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, When Christ appears and when we see him, we will be like him. And the glory that he has, we will see and we will reflect, much like Moses when he went up to Mount Sinai, right? He saw, the Lord just gave him just a quick glimpse of his glory. What happened to Moses? His face shone. He glowed with the glory that he was exposed to. And in that day of glory that's coming in the future, we will have the glory that Christ gives to us. It won't come from ourselves. It will, it will come from him and him alone. So we have a hope of incomparable glory. Do you do you know about that glory that is to come? We're going to talk more about this in just a minute. But not only do we have an incompar- the hope of incomparable glory, we have a hope, brothers and sisters, that makes us groan from the inside out. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. What does it mean to groan? I know our youth group really knows how to groan. Every time I tell a dad joke, I hear it all the time. It means you sigh or you make a noise out of stress or um, concern. And in our passage, there are two different groups that, that, that groan. The first is creation. Verses 19 through 22 talk about how creation is groaning and waiting for the day when Jesus Christ comes back waiting for the day where the sons of God are revealed. Every time a volcano erupts, every time there's a tsunami, every time there's a hurricane, every time a tornado comes and ravishes our earth, as dry seasons get drier and wet seasons get wetter, this is all an act of creation, groaning, sighing, and waiting for the day of the glory that is to come. And we, Paul says, and we likewise groan. We groan. Like creation, we groan. Do you groan for that day? Do you groan as you wait for this incomparable glory to come? Why do we groan? James Montgomery Boyce, a, 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 a preacher and whose, whose work on Romans has been brought into a commentary series, he gives us several reasons of why we groan as Christians as we wait for this wonderful hope. He says, first of all, we groan just like everyone else because of the physical stresses and sufferings of life. Everyone experiences those and groans through those. But specifically as Christians, we groan, we sigh, because we feel the tension of being in this world, but not of this world. 
And the longer you're here on earth walking as a pilgrim, you will feel that tension and you will feel the separation between you and the world around you in a greater intensity, especially as we become more secularized in our culture. We groan because of this tension. We also groan because of indwelling sin, the presence of sin still in our lives. I think about Peter. Peter, I will not deny you, Lord. Jesus says, yes, you will. Peter denies Jesus three times. And then during the trial, Jesus' eyes lock eyes with Peter. And what does Peter do? The Bible tells us he wept bitterly. Does your sin make you weep? I know my sin makes me groan. Every time I sin, I know I've done wrong. And I go, why do I do that? Paul understood that in chapter 7. He says, the things I know I shouldn't do, I do. And the things that I know I should do, I don't do. And there's this tension that is real. And that tension causes us to groan. We also groan because we long for our expectant hope. Like a bride or a groom who awaits the day of their wedding. And they groan because it's not here yet. So we groan in anticipation for the glory to be revealed. And remember, our passage tells us we groan inwardly. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly because that's where the Spirit takes residence in us. And it's the Spirit of God in us that makes us groan. Mm. Do you groan today? So we have a hope of incomparable glory. We see from our text we have a hope that makes us groan, but we also have a hope that makes us eager. We have a hope that makes us eager. Groaning is that negative understanding and, and, and reality. Eagerness is that positive, uh, uh, the positive side of the same coin. We wait with anticipation. If you've ever had, if you have children or if you were a child at one point, I'm thinking most of us were. And do you remember the anticipation for Christmas? You remember Christmas Eve as you were waiting for the presents to come. There was this joy. There was this like energy inside of you that kept you up. Some, some of you, that energy started at December 1st. But there's this eagerness. And then Paul tells us right here in verse 23, we wait eagerly. Now, what do we wait eagerly for? And we're going we're gonna to slow down and put it in first gear here. What are we eagerly waiting for? Paul tells us that we're eagerly waiting the adoptions, the adoption as sons. Now, here's, here's something interesting. The reality is, the current reality is that if you are saved, if the Spirit is inside of you, and if you are led by the Spirit, what did verse 14 of Romans tell you? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you're saved today, you are a child of God. You've been adopted. You are in the family registry. You're all, all the legal work has been taken care of. But our adoption is not complete yet. There is coming a day when our adoption will be finalized. We had some friends who adopted a, a boy from India. They did all the paperwork. They paid all the costs. Legally, he was theirs. But they had to go, and they went to India. They went to the orphanage. They embraced him. He was theirs. 
but he wasn't home yet. They got into the plane. They went across international lines, brought him home to his room, held him in his arms at their house, and it was finished. He was there in the house, in the home, with his family. And what we're waiting for, brothers and sisters, is the day when we're in the dwelling place of God forever and ever eating and drinking with his presence and with our older brother, Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you from God's word, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. You can turn there if you want to. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 7. Then John is talking about this vision that he has. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God will be home. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said to me, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Brothers and sisters, write it down. This is trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. On that day, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the ending. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes the world will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. There is coming a day when our adoption will be complete. And that is part of the incomparable glory. Are you waiting eagerly for that adoption? There's something else that we wait for eagerly in our text, going back to Romans. We wait eagerly not only for the adoption as sons, but the redemption of our bodies. This is in reference to none other than the resurrection of our bodies. When Christ comes back for us and calls us home, this is the part and this is part of the glory that is to be revealed This is part of our glorious hope that one day when we see Jesus, we will be like him. And how shall we be like him? What will our resurrection bodies be like? Let's go go look at scripture. What does God's trustworthy word tell us? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We won't read it in its entirety. But here's what we know about our resurrection bodies. Are you tired of your body? Your body's probably tired of you. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. All right. So, what is our resurrection body going to be like? Verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, 
What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. The body that goes into the ground goes imperishable. You're familiar with perishable foods. They decay. They mold. They break down. They stank. What is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. Never Never more to mold and decay and to get weak and to stank. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. There's not much glory as to what you're looking at right here. Even though Michelle might think so. There's not much honorable right here. But one day when it's laid in the ground and this body is raised in the ground, it will will be put in the ground. It will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. And what is sown as a natural body will be raised as a spiritual body. For if there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Now pause right there, time out. What does this mean, a spiritual body? Does this mean that we won't be living in reality and we'll just be like ghosts and spirits? No. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he had a real physical body. But it was not like the body he had before. It was physical. He could look at Thomas and he could say, hey, dude. Put your hands or put your fingers in my hands. Come and put your fingers in my side. Feel the wounds I have. He could walk with his disciples to Emmaus. He could break bread with them. He could could cook fish on the bank and eat with them. All of that real. But Jesus could come and he could go as he pleased. Jesus had a different type of body. And brothers and sisters, that is the type of body that we will have on that last day. The hope that we have should make us eager for the redemption of our bodies. Now I'm going to continue reading, starting in verse 50, because this is good, wonderful things that I would encourage you this morning with. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's another way of saying we shall not all die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass one of my most favorite phrases in all of the Bible. When we put on imperishable, when we put on immortality, we'll be able to kick death straight in the teeth. And we'll say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is awful. Death is an enemy. And I hate death. And some of you, you have lost loved ones, spouses, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, friends. Some of you are facing death. The hope that we have is this. Death does not win. We win. Jesus wins. And we win through his victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This is worth waiting eagerly for, brothers and sisters. 
So not only do we have a hope that has incomparable glory, not only do we have a hope that makes us groan and makes us, and makes us wait with um, eagerness, makes us eager, but we have a hope that we wait for with patience. Did you catch that? Verse 25, Paul says, But if we have a hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What does it mean to be patient? Some people think, and we can get the idea, that patience is merely just being able to hold our tongue when we're, when we're upset. That's part of it. But there's a full scope. When the Bible talks about patience, it's talking about endurance. It's talking about stick to It's talking about finishing the race and crossing the finish line. When our bodies are saying, quit, stop. It is continuing in your faith when the devil and the world calls you fool and throws everything they can at you to stop following Jesus and to cause you to doubt his goodness and try to keep you and to cease you in your faith. This is patience. Patience is continuing on. And this is how we ought to wait for the glory that is to be revealed to us. We need to endure. But why should we wait patiently? Why should we endure all of this hardness? Wouldn't it be easier just to give up and go with the flow? Wouldn't it be easier just to believe what the rest of the world is believing? Acquire as much as we can? Do what we want? How is it that we, why not give in to the current and unbelieving world that pushes hard against us? Why fight so hard to the end? Why be patient? Because there is an empty tomb in Israel where there should be the body of a crucified Jewish carpenter. But there is not. We wait for patience because Jesus, through his resurrection, has gone on before us and has secured for us this hope of future glory. We endure because Christ endured. And Christ endured because he had the hope of glory that was set before him. And he was able to endure the pains of this world because he could look past them and see the glory. I want to encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters. I want you to lift up your eyes. And if God can use me to do this, where you could lift up your eyes and see the glory that waits and see the hope that waits for you as a child of God so you can endure, I hope God will use it this way. Because some of us really need it. Some of you really need encouragement today. This is our hope, brothers and sisters. This, we have a glorious hope that we are waiting for. You might be here this morning and say, Preacher, this hope sounds wonderful, but I don't have it. I want it, but I just don't have it. Well, let me give you four barriers to the hope we should be eagerly waiting for. Four barriers that keep us from having this hope, and then let me quickly give you the remedies. You all know not to believe a preacher when he says, let me do this quickly or shortly, right? I'll try. I really will try. The first barrier to the hope that we've talked about this morning is the first and primary barrier, and that is lostness. This hope is for those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. If you're not a child of God, you don't have this hope. If you're not a child of God, you're a child of disobedience and by nature a child of wrath. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm not trying to be mean. That's just the way it is. But hallelujah, you've been hearing about Jesus who died for you. And Jesus says this, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. 
And so if you're here this morning and you don't have this hope because you don't believe in Christ and you haven't given your life and put your faith in him, now's the time. Today is the day of salvation. And we call you and we urge you to come to Christ. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Number two, the second barrier, the love of this world. Maybe you have come to Christ and you still don't have this hope, and maybe it's because you're too preoccupied with the cares and the trivialities that are all around you. Maybe you're too busy pursuing the things of this world rather than pursuing Jesus. Maybe you can't sing this song knowing Jesus, knowing you. What's the remedy? Stop following the world and follow Jesus. Love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Maybe you're here this morning, and you don't have this hope because you've neglected the very place and the very, well, the very place that you need to go to in order to be encouraged, and that's church. That's what Hebrews 10, 23, 24, and 25 are all about. You know, you've probably heard that old, the, the, the verse, do not neglect the gathering of the brethren, as is the habit of some. You know what that's in context with? That's in context of being encouraged to continue on until the day draws near. Maybe the Rona has given you opportunity to become absent, needlessly absent in church. If you don't have hope, if you're not coming here, you're not going to be encouraged for having hope. Maybe you're a visitor today and you're like, I'm not going to be here. Well, go find a good church that preaches the gospel and that will encourage you to this hope of glory. Then lastly, oh, the remedy is very easy for this third one. Sorry. Go to church. There you go. Start coming and go to a good church. The fourth one, spiritual warfare. We have an adversary and he would love more than anything else in the world than to steal our joy to steal our hope. He would love to take it away from you. So how do you stand against an adversary who's like a lion seeking whom he may devour? Put on, therefore, the whole armor of God. Take up the helmet of salvation that tells you of the hope that you have. Put on the belt of truth that tells you that Jesus is not in the grave, but is resurrected. And because of his resurrection, you have the hope of the resurrection too. Take up in your hand the sword of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and, 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 and stop being defensive, but be offensive and take the battle to Satan. If you are a child of God this morning, know with confidence that you have a glorious hope in the midst of your current suffering. Leave knowing that you have a great and glorious hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for today. I thank you for your wonderful truth. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have. And I pray right now for those who are suffering right now, very acutely, very noticeably. They, they know it. They feel it in their lives. I pray that you would give them eyes to see the glory that awaits them as your child. If there's anyone here that does not know you, does not know this hope, Lord, the invitation is there. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I pray that they would reach out in faith and trust Christ. We pray these things, and we pray, dear Lord Jesus, come.
It's in his name we ask these things. Amen.